It's a tough thing about building something that's actually truly innovative. Like it actually does come with challenges. There's a lot of ways that you can succeed. And if you have really good tech and you are like investing early on in both sales and marketing, I think that like you're giving yourself a real leg up. I mean, look, you gotta be creative as you're building your business. Like you can't build every single feature from the very beginning. So, you know, the challenge there is you wanna be innovative, but also somewhat familiar. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. This episode, I'm joined by Andrew Peterson, CEO and co-founder of Signal Sciences, an application security company building a next-gen WAF that is deployed throughout the Fortune 500. Before starting Signal Sciences, Andrew and his two co-founders built up scar tissue, solving security problems at Etsy, a company known for pioneering many of the DevOps practices that are common today. This experience gave them unique insights and connections that helped shape their top-down, go-to-market approach. This leads us to how embracing core enterprise-ready features early on was critical to ensuring them a seat at the table with the biggest enterprises from the start. We wrap up our discussion with Andrew's tips on creating customer success through a strong professional services offering. Hey, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Uh, really great to be here, Grant. Cool, so let's just jump right in. So, well, well, hold on, be- before we start, I was told that there would be beer here when we were doing the recording. Oh, right. I'll hail the uh, waiter to come bring us a few. <laughs> Just a second. That, that'll be afterwards. Cool. So let's let's jump in. So t- sure. tell me a little bit about your background. Like, uh, wh- Where are you now? What have you been up to? Yeah, so I co-founded uh, a company. I'm the CEO of Signal Sciences, um, and we're based down here in the LA area along with your company, Replicated. We're a cybersecurity company that does uh, protection of web applications, web APIs, uh, microservices, basically any type of web service that you're running to be able to give people monitoring into attacks or sort of real-time attacks that are happening on their um, their application then provide protection against those attacks in the same process. Cool. So how did you get into that? Yeah, right? Like who grows up being like, I'm going to be a security professional. I, I got roped in by my two co-founders. Um, so I, I worked with them at a previous job. We were all at a company called Etsy, and they've been doing security and security engineering for ages and ages. And I was just a lowly product manager there, but ended up kind of running a, a large business unit over time when I was there. But while we were all there, we overlapped on a bunch of different product projects, specifically around both fraud and security features. But uh, we were all in the same like core team for a couple of months, and just we just knew each other uh, for a long time. Cool, but... Etsy's not really an enterprise software company. So what <laughs> what got you to to into the enterprise software world? Yeah, so the backstory there is um, a lot of people know Etsy from like a yeah, from a consumer brand standpoint, right? It's a publicly traded company now, it does four billion dollars in transactions a year. I mean it's it's a pretty large scale site at this point, but you know, man, it was about nine years ago that we were starting there. The story that people may or may not know on the technology side is that they were kind of some of the pioneers uh, of DevOps. Um, they were doing a lot of the things there before it was even called that. So, like, 
they open sourced a bunch of tools like StatsD is one of the things that they ended up open sourcing back in the day. They did a lot of sort of innovation work around CI/CD pipeline stuff. So that was sort of on the on the software development side. And then as we were starting to build up our kind of security team and build our security presence there, what we just ran into is that because we were doing so many things that were you know, just at the time, very niche from a technology perspective, we ended up having, you know, a really big sort of build, not buy culture when we were there. And that really started to, I mean, we did that kind of across the organization, actually, in a lot of different types of technologies. But from a security perspective, yeah, we built a bunch of stuff in-house because the stuff that was kind of off the shelf, it didn't work. So we got the opportunity to be able to learn a ton of lessons at Etsy in this, you know, what at the time was a very odd and very unique kind of technology setup that, you know, a couple of years later, we started to see the writing on the wall being like, hey, you know, we would give talks to the industry about some of the things that we were doing and learning there to try to give people um, an idea about how they could do this stuff themselves. And, you know, everybody came back to us and were like, hey, we don't have 15 security engineers to build anything. We don't even have a single security engineer to build anything. How do we buy this stuff off the shelf? And you start really understanding that when you get out of these really sort of high-tech and forward-thinking technology groups that end up doing a lot of this sort of in, in-house development and, and uh, creative software development for all sorts of things, including engineering tools, you get to the mainstream and like they don't have that. And they have budgets and they have money to be able to buy this stuff. And so there was kind of a, a combo light that turned on for us. One was there was this real need that, that our peers in the industry were asking us for help on, and that you know just so happens to translate into a pretty big business opportunity as well. So I think we heard enough feedback from folks saying they, they want help with this that we said, hey, that, you know, let, let's go help solve this problem for the industry. Cool. So it, it's as if there was this sort of like seed of change that was happening, and Etsy was part of that original... You know, sort of DevOps movement and doing things very differently. So the existing tooling for how do you secure a like continuously deployed application like just didn't exist in the market. And so you guys were out there talking about that. Like your co-founder Zane was the CISO from Etsy, and he was talking about how you're doing security in this sort of continuous delivery world, right? Correct. And then that created this demand. So you sort of felt the pool. Is that right? Yeah, it, it was a bit of the poll. I, I don't think any of us are sort of sitting there being like, we're geniuses and we came up with this and we're the first ones to think of this. You really are just kind of excited that you're learning some lessons like on the job while you're building some of this tooling and you're excited to share it with other folks, but assuming that other people have this stuff also, right? You're like, oh, like we're, we're not terribly special. But the more and more conversations that we have with folks, we're just like, wow, th- there's really kind of a core element here of just people do not have visibility into what's happening in a production environment from an attacker perspective. And, you know, again, this is stuff that you just kind of take for granted. Like when you look back at it, like I think we had this, we had this great backdrop of all the DevOps tooling pieces that we were building there. And really like the, the, this is kind of an interesting side story in some ways, but like the efforts around what sort of created DevOps or what we were leaning into there really just started from a, we want the dev team and the operations teams to work better together. Like it was about cooperation. It wasn't really about like a tool set or a philosophy. It was a culture thing. That, that that's how it started, and what came out from that was like these lessons learned of being like, well, if you're gonna make tools to be able to enable some of this sort of cultural shift or enable these these teams to work together, they have to be super easy to use and they have to be useful for both sides of the house. 
And so I think as we started to think about security and how to integrate security into that pre-existing sort of culture and philosophy that we already had at Etsy, that again was very unique at the time, but seemed normal to us because we were just in it, we were thinking the same way about security. And so now people call that DevSecOps or SecOps or whatever. It has like some nomenclature that goes along with it. But that was just such a core part of our DNA that we were like, hmm, so when we're thinking about security, like, how are we going to think about solving these problems for, you know, runtime or production applications and what's important there? Well, we should probably get some monitoring there to e- even understand where the problems are that exist in the first place. It was just such a natural, like, thing for us to think about. The rest of the industry was all based on a waterfall model of, you know, application delivery where the dev team builds the code, they pass it off to the next team, the next team, the next team. Security is just one of those teams in line in the waterfall. And then when it, you know security team gets it, they solve all the problems. So like they they fix all the bugs in production. And then when it actually goes to production, you're just kind of assuming that it's safe. You never really thought about like how do we get a feedback loop from the behavior of the people that are using my application back into my dev cycle, right? To be able to actually make those adjustments, we learned those things on the sort of operational and on the development side, and we really applied that same learning to to the security side. So how did the company start out of this? Like one, I think it's interesting to just say like I've seen this pattern of, you know, a great team inside of a company doing that a lot of new things sort of recognizes that there's this opportunity that the market will more likely come towards them. You see like a lot of times people at Google kind of launching different, you know, oh, we're going to bring the way that Google does X Y or Z to everyone else. And so you kind of did the same thing for you know, hey, we're going to bring the way that Etsy's been doing security to everyone else because this is the you know known for continuous delivery. And so, you know, that's a great founding story that really helps, I think, sell the message. And plus, I mean, the other thing that I know about signal sciences is that you know you you've told me that Zane's early videos and talks about security and DevOps have been like this huge sort of flag in the world that you guys planted around like how to do security in the modern age, and that like brings people to you. So was was all of that happening before you started the company? When did that really come together? Yeah, I mean, you know, g- giving talks in the security world is like a very common thing that you do. There's lots of different security conferences and stuff that are out there. So I think like, you know, h- how do you sort of make notoriety for yourself? I think in the industry, like it really comes through doing talks. And I think both Zane and Nick have given talks in the industry for a long time. They're just unique in the sense that they're really good communicators. They're like, they're not only brilliant in terms of how they think about things, they're very humble also, but they're funny, they're like, they're entertaining. So that I think was, it was certainly the key to be able to get feedback from people about being like, sure, we have like followers, a lot of people are looking at these videos, but I think like just even seeing the sheer number of views and the sheer number of feedback that we would get, we just saw that it was really resonating, that this was a problem that was like clearly not not well solved if if there was a solution to it in the first place. And clearly continue to be growing <laughs> because we we're obviously not like, again, we're not like the smartest people in the world. I think we just kind of got lucky to be in the right place at the right time to be able to get that experience at Etsy and then really hit a chord of a line of conversation around this stuff that a lot of other people were going through at the same time. And then you started the company. So what did that look like? What got you out of the door and into into building something for yourself and making this a product? Yeah, so, so we... Um, you know, I think as, as a lot of founding teams do, we we spend a little bit of time up front just making sure that like, hey, is this something that's legit? I think for a lot of us that start companies, especially if you're starting them out of a successful career that you've had at other large technology companies, the allure of staying at those companies is quite large. I mean, 
we're in a very unique time where our skills are highly sought after. And so, you know, if you want to go work at a larger technology company, like you can be like highly rewarded and highly compensated to be able to do so. So I tell people a lot, and I still actually believe this, that probably one of the most important things for the company was just getting all of us to agree to quit and start the company together. It's really hard to like make that decision yourself to feel like you're making a, a big risk in starting a company. And there's lots of different risks that that goes into that, both personal risk and like financial risk. But doing that across three different people who are bringing both unique and really incredibly important skill sets to the table to be able to get something off the ground, quite hard. Um, the good news is, is because we had experience working together in the past, we didn't have those questions, like the questions of like, how would we work well together? And, you know, what roles are we going to take on? Like we, we had those conversations very early on, but it was pretty easy to define. The bigger question was just like, are you willing to take the personal and financial risk to start a company? And then once you did start, you really went enterprise from day zero. Like you didn't try to offer this to SMBs and do or do something open source. You, you really went straight ahead for enterprise software companies as your earliest customers. Like, Talk about what that was like. We were in, a, I think, a pretty unique situation. Again, now, especially looking in hindsight, having talked to a lot of other and worked with a lot of other startups in the space, we were in a unique position because, because we had built a lot of these sort of techniques and learned a lot of lessons while we were at Etsy and you know, went out to the market and actually gave talks about these things and gotten a lot of feedback from people that they're like, yes, I need that that exact functionality. We didn't have to start the company being like, hmm, like we should build an MVP to see if it gets used and we should do this. Like we took venture capital money from the beginning. Um, there's a whole sort of line of conversation that would be interesting there, but probably for another time. But we took that money from the beginning because we really wanted to try to grow something really large. And so we took that money from the beginning, we hired people, we really spent the first probably year and a half to two years just building out the technology. We tried to get users and stuff along the way to be able to help give us feedback, but we were really building for ourselves. Like we knew what we needed. It's it, you know, it was basically this super next generation version of the like hacky stuff that we built uh, in-house when we were at Etsy. And really we we've almost had like a roadmap for three or four years from the, our, our first four years of what we wanted to build. So we're in some ways we're like just now getting to the point where we're like, oh, like now let's start to figure out what we do next because we had that vision. But the, the value of what that meant is that in our first 20 customers, we got to have one of the biggest banks in the world be one of our customers because we were really familiar with what, what was required, not only from the functional perspective, from like a, what do you need on, on the security side of this, but also what some of those requirements were to be able to actually sell a, a product into a, a larger enterprise. Yeah, how did you know what those features were that you needed to sell into a large enterprise? Like, what was the? Yeah, so, so there's a combination of things there. One, Nick and Zane, uh, my co-founders, they were both big security vendor buyers. Also, when we were in-house at Etsy in the first place, so they had a lot of personal experience with understanding like what's on a security questionnaire. Like, how do you need to architect your technology to make it so that you get past some of those things? We were running a cloud service, so we knew that privacy was going to be a huge issue. Privacy and performance. So. Like you know, it's interesting that GDPR is coming up now. We don't. We actually haven't had huge issues with GDPR because we built a privacy model in from the very beginning because that was actually going to be a really key component to being able to successfully sell to large enterprises with it with a SaaS or, or a cloud backend service that we were providing. Right. So some of it was that. Some of it was actually having experience. 
you know, my co-founder Nick and I, we actually developed basically a version of like Zendesk in-house when we were at Etsy. You know, you have this whole build not buy culture there. We were like, well, of course we can go and build our own customer service platform. And it turns out we went through all sorts of, you know, you have role-based access control. You have to have logging and reporting on that to understand who made what changes to be able to go. So we actually had some pretty hands-on experience actually building the product there to know those pieces. So I think the combination of both being a buyer of security products for many, many years on one side, and then also building and producing basically enterprise tools in-house uh, when we were at Etsy. And I've done that at previous jobs also. Gave us a really good sort of starting point. And then afterwards, it's, you listen to your customers pretty quickly. And you can have as many of those conversations up front as possible, but you learn along the way. And so you were building for yourselves. And I think you had a lot of other security vendors as early customers as well, right? Mm. And so is that just using your network and talking to other people about how they were doing it and showing them what you had? How did you get those very early customers? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that's like, it's a tough thing about building something that's actually truly innovative and not to like sort of pat ourselves on the back, but like it actually does come with challenges where it's if you're innovating in a space, where's the demand, right? If the product doesn't exist right now, then it doesn't exist for a reason. Like people aren't thinking about asking for this. And so... A lot of you know what people affectionately call like evangelistic sales or something like that is that you're really having to go and find the people that have a vision for what it is that they want from a product that's in the space and try to sort of match up with those people. So you know the challenge there is you want to be innovative, but also somewhat familiar. And we've had actually I think a lot of challenges with that over the course of launching the product and then sort of iterating our like product positioning over time where I think initially we were so focused on being like I don't I don't want any competition we want to have the product that nobody else can do and we're the only ones that can do it and I you know I sort of look back on that and I was like oh that's that's cute like that's so naive in some ways and now when I'm working with other folks that are kind of coming up it's like it's actually a really strong thing if there's other competitors that are in the space and you need to find your way to be able to sort of differentiate yourself from those other players but if they're already there and there's a pre-existing market that means it's a foot in the door being able to have some of these sales conversations right so i think one of our biggest challenges early on was just figuring out how to market our technology in a way that was actually consumable by people that did not have the same sort of future vision and or experience that we had when we were at Etsy to know what what they should need yeah, there's often a lot of context that's required in order for people to understand what the innovative thing is you're talking about, right? Because if they don't understand continuous delivery or deployment, whatever you want to say CD is, then they're not going to understand like why they would need a solution in the security space to solve that problem. Yeah, exactly. So so part of it is like, you know, where do we have to begin? What are the selling points? So we used to think that that was like going to be the big selling point. We're like, hey, are you leaning into DevOps practices? If you are, like, it creates these inherent problems with the technology that you're going to run into of you know the existing tool that you're using right now to try to attempt to do what we were doing now. You know, if you are, then like this is why like we're the perfect one. We thought that was going to be like a killer way to have those conversations. Turns out like. Some people did that, some people didn't, right? Like some people were leaning into those things, some people weren't. Those have become like much more standard practices across any type of uh, large enterprise. But even today, if you go, like, we don't go into large enterprises being like, cool, you guys are doing CI CD, so you need this tool. Sometimes they don't even know what CI CD is, right? And so I think the bigger lesson learned for us is that you need to learn what are the pain points that they're thinking about today 
that they will be able to buy today. Some of these folks might like having conversations about the future of what like problems you could solve for them. And this is like for us, the example would be, sure, look, if you're moving to a CICD pipeline where you're changing your application on a very regular basis, then you can't use a waterfall model of, of development. You have no time to be able to look for bugs before they go into production. And so therefore you have to have some type of understanding of where attacks are happening in your production systems because your app is changing so often. Well, it turns out that same thing if your app's not changing at all, you still want to know where attackers are attacking your system in any part of your system because you've never had that visibility before. So at least you know where the problem is that could exist, right? So we sort of evolved it back into that. And then you know we had to even sort of take a step even further back, I think, in the future as we evolved to saying, hey, the technology you're using today is called a web application firewall. Like We do that better in these three ways, including cost savings and these. So it's for us, it was important when we were getting off the ground to be able to sell to people that did have this vision for the future because they were the only ones that they were going to take a chance on a brand new vendor like us. right? So we found the people that really matched the vision that we had so we didn't have to have these sort of super in-depth conversations. But as you move up the, you know, crossing the chasm, whatever you want to call it, you move into the mainstream, you're just not going to get people that are sitting there with a vision of what their products should be doing and you got to find a way to sell more to the pain that's important to them, which could be, how do you make my job easier? How do you make it so that I don't have to spend as much money on this stuff? Or you know, how do you alleviate political issues and stuff that I have internally? So if I break that down, it's sort of like when you first came out with your product, there was a, like a platform shift, a paradigm shift, which was continuous you know, CICD, right? Mm-hmm. And that concept you thought would propel the market and the adoption of your product. And it did for maybe your first few customers who were like, yeah, we love continuous integration, you know, and so like we're, of course we're like we need something, a new security tool to solve that problem. Yeah. And then you like ran to the end of that market. Like we've we've had those conversations, but now people don't really understand that or they they we don't want to wait for them to be totally CI CD'd up before they're going to adopt our solution. So now we need to kind of be able to maybe not even change the product, but at least change the description to retrofit it back to how they're doing things today and compare it to their current solutions and say, you know, even in a world of waterfall deployment, you still need this tool. Yeah, and, and you know, th- this is something that I talk to folks a lot about. You, you know, I might have talked about this stuff in, in the past. When you're getting off the ground, you don't have a brand you're trying to go to people and have these conversations to convince them that they need your product. And most of the time, they're just kind of looking for an excuse to either get off the phone or just kind of derail like whatever it is that you're selling. And so they'll throw up a bunch of these sort of either false roadblocks where you can't even actually get to the value conversation there around like, cool, like, do you need visibility into the attacks that are happening on your website? And they're like, well, do you have SAML? Like, do you have role-based access control? And like, you know, at the beginning, we're product people, so we're like, no, we don't. You know, it's like very like matter of fact, like, you know, you either have it or not. It's like a binary, right? It's like, no, we don't have that yet. It's on our roadmap and everybody's heard it's on our roadmap, right? Like on our roadmap means like, no, it's not in the in the product. But the problem with that is that it would stymie us from being able to have a deeper conversation really around some of the problems that we could solve for them. Like they just derailed it by saying, like, do you have these things? So one of the things I've I've told other people before is you got to identify some of those sort of red herring type of questions that people are asking. It's basically like 
these questions that are just trying to um, create a roadblock for the conversation so that you can't actually get into the meat of something where maybe you can actually learn from them about what their actual real problem is. So when they bring some of these some of these things up that are really like sort of core core features of being able to sell in the enterprise, the thing is, it's going to take three to six to nine months to sell these folks in the first place. And so we learned that we could move so fast by building those things in if that really was like a requirement for them that we ended up started started to just say like, yeah, we, we've got SAML. Like if, the, if that's important to you, like, yeah, of course we got that, right? Like let's move on to the next question, right? Or the next thing that you're trying to sort of decipher whether or not this thing is valuable for you. And that'll change over time as you start building your reputation. People actually like you know have already heard about you and they've heard good things, and then then they they, they sort of expect that you have that stuff already, and they're not looking to just kind of challenge you. But so so I don't know if this really is is sort of answering your question specifically, but like it's something that I think is really important for people that as they as they are starting to sell into the enterprise that there's going to be a lot of a lot of pushback and requests and stuff that you're going to get from those folks on all sorts of different types of technology things that you wouldn't have thought that are necessary to sell into those people but really the goal of your conversation should get to the to try to get them to the point of saying is this something that's actually valuable would you pay for this thing and so don't let them asking you sort of these side questions of do you have this setup or this technology sort of get in the way of that. And I, I would say don't be afraid to just say that you have those things to be able to continue to try to progress in the conversation. And part of that from your perspective is because specifically for signal sciences, you're really only selling to enterprises. So your roadmap was like, we need to understand the functional value of our product, make sure we're communicating that correctly. And then you were committed internally to build whatever ancillary features were needed for enterprise adoption and you just knew that you would have plenty of time between like someone describing all the problems they have from a functional perspective between like them actually signing a PO and like implementing it so you knew you could like hustle and build those those pieces. Yeah, well and and, and those those things might not even have been things that they really required. Like if they got to the thing where they're like I really want that value, like they might not actually require it. So like I I use this example a lot is like you know, this gets down down into like compliance standards and stuff that people have, where they sometimes they say like, "Are you SOC two compliant?" And if you're not, like, we can't ever work with you. They would be hard pressed to be able to have a list of vendors that they use that none of them are like that. All of them are SOC two compliant today. I, like, I can guarantee you. Like, I know multiple publicly traded security companies who are not SOC two compliant. So it's really more that they're using that as a means of just derailing the conversation so that they just don't even have to test it. So in some ways it's like, it's not so much even that like, hey, we don't have SAML, we're going to have to build that over the next six months before we actually sell this to them. It's more that they're asking you that to stop the conversation. So you say yes, and then you just continue to proceed down having a conversation with those folks. Because like one of the things we learned is that a lot of the conversations here God, for pro- for like for product and technology minded people like us, like you just are like, hey, like this value is so undeniable. Like, why can't you just get it and then like, cool, we'll have a transaction and you pay this thing. We'll we'll charge a fair price for you. You use it and then you buy. That's not how the world works in general. And it takes a while for like technology people to really sort of understand that. But then the flip side of this is is basically saying like, you know, again, what is the value that we're offering? Is that value something that you actually care about? And then. What are the processes that we actually have to go through to be able to get that technology in place with them? And just to to sort of add on top of that, like we learned that a lot of the goal of our first conversations with any of our customers, it's not to get them to like use the technology. It's just about getting the next meeting. Like, hey, we had the first meeting. The goal is to get the next meeting. 
Because when you're selling to a large bank, you know that like you're not going to have one meeting and they're going to make a decision. I mean, you're in it for eight months until they make a decision there. So the goal is always get to the next meeting, get the next step, make sure that they're interested enough to continue to have the conversation. Is part of the decision-making criteria, do they do a, a proof of concept like a POC? Uh, with our with our technology, yes, yeah, yeah, they do. Okay, so that's that's part of every deal is a POC is done before. Yeah, I mean it's it's actually becoming less and less now. It's still the majority of them, and really because it's easy to use, like the the product's easy to use. It's easy to actually get installed, and so you know we, we've had a couple of contracts where people actually buy it sight unseen, which we see as a real sort of maturity uh, step for us. Either we have like a good enough brand already, or you know good enough customer references, or whatever. But early on, like you got to put your money where your mouth is if you're saying something. Because again, you're sort of guilty until proven innocent type of thing when you're going in to actually sell, especially to enterprises. And then you just tell them that uh, the SAML integration is not part of the POC. Yeah. That's, uh, you have to sign the enterprise contract to get that that feature toggled on. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, look, you got to be creative as you're building your business. Like you can't build every single feature from the very beginning. But you did say that you architected from the beginning, understanding that you would be building things like role-based access control Correct. and single sign-on and reporting and all these other features that we sort of think about as enterprise-ready requirements, right? Yeah, well, and, and that gets back to our experience of having having bought these sort of security products before for larger enterprises that we were working in and having you know sort of developed some of these things ourselves that were like, one side of the architecture was building for scale, right? So like we, we were able to do that really well and, and sort of kudos to Nick, our CTO, he's like, Fantastic at being able to do this because he's had a lot of experience sort of building out scaled systems, which is that's like an engineering side of the house. But like this is really sort of a product feature question, which is, are you architecting your database to have multiple different roles and then being able to match those roles with different types of access and product functionality? We did that stuff from day one, or really like day zero, right? Like when you're thinking about just how the models are actually built in the first place. So we didn't have to, we didn't have to wait to the point where we went to ask a bank and they were like, oh, we need some people with read access and some people with write access. We're like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, we know, yeah, like, got it. Yeah, it helps to just even have the the knowledge about those features before you go into those conversations because then you you look like you know what you're talking about. Well, like not only that, like we'd go in, I don't know, they'd be like, do you guys have admins and users? And we'd be like, actually, we have even another role. That is, it was a read-only role, so that you could add other people to the platform that was actually, you know, dealing with blocking um, production traffic, and you don't want to give everybody access to being able to block your production traffic. So, like, we actually used the, like a, a unique role in role-based access control as a selling point into them. So it it showed this sort of depth of of maturity into our understanding of how to build the product for their needs. Yeah, I think that that communicates a lot early on to enterprises. It's especially. You know, number one, you're only going to market in enterprises, so you're, that's all your customer references are, that's all the conversations are, and then was looking at your site and seeing like, you know, some tiny SMB using it, so everyone thinks, you know, it's enterprise ready from the get go, and then probably also allows you to like command a higher price from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is a core part of the story that, like, if I know anybody that's gone through the same experience where they've been in house and they've like dealt with those experiences, and they're like building a product that's that sort of comes out of that experience of building stuff in house, or or at least getting like even access to the problems uh, in house, lean on that heavily in your sales conversations and your marketing conversations because it was so important for us to be able to go into these these folks and say like, look, yeah, we're a vendor, 
yeah, there's sort of this natural adversarial relationship in some ways between like, you know, you're the buyer and I'm the, I'm the seller type of thing. But we were on your other side for ages. So we know your problem so well that we've created a solution that is like exactly how you would have designed it from the beginning. And so like the way that we sort of sold that at the beginning to like our first customers were like, hey, when you come on, like you'll be able to like get access to adjusting the product roadmap in the future. Like in reality, like we didn't actually have to adjust the product roadmap very much at all because we already knew the problems that they were getting. But like, you know, if people needed to hear that to be able to get excited about getting on board, of course we'd sell that. But the reality is if you do have that story, if you do have that experience, you have such a huge leg up on anybody else that's trying to do this because you have personal experience. And so you're developing for a very like practical solution to the problem instead of a theoretical one. And that is just an absolute game-changing conversation that you can have with the customer. Yeah, I mean, you said you were building for yourselves because you were basically building the, the version of what you had kind of hacked together at Etsy. You were building the the next generation, like on steroids version of that that you'd want to use yourselves. Yeah, and that was like agnostic to the platform that you were solving on. I mean, like so much, so much of the in-house stuff that gets built that's like, you know, a hack day project or something like that. Like it's built for one monolithic platform or one specific type of customer. So yeah, like it's a very different thing to build something that's really agnostic to somebody's platform. And then were you doing like early product? Were you doing early like customer development? What was the the roles that the three of you sort of took? And then you said you hired pretty quickly. So, like, what, what were the first roles you hired? Yeah, I mean, we we hired design and engineering, and then we hired some product, and then we actually hired sales pretty early on. You know, I think I think a lot of people that are again technologists tend to focus on like, hey, if we just get the tech right, like if you build it, they will come. I am like not, and if you build it right, they will come. Type of um, technologists like the actual sales process, the political realities of selling into organizations, like the relationship development piece of sales is almost just as important as the actual technology that you're selling. I mean, how many companies do you know today that have really not great technology that are like really, really strong companies from like a money perspective? Salesforce. I mean, (laughs) I'd say there's a lot, right? And so there's a lot of ways that you can succeed. And if you have really good tech and you are like investing early on in both sales and marketing, I think that like you're giving yourself a real leg up on people that are only focused on building great technology. And this is funny because like my CTO, fantastic, incredible technologist, also incredibly business savvy as well. And he loves actually digging into sales stuff because like he's like, hey, there's actually a real methodology and there's a science behind sales and marketing as well that like being as a trained engineer, he was like, I never thought that that these things existed. But if you hire the right salespeople that come on that are super nerdy about these things, I think, yeah, like I think you can really systematize and and work on building your sales motion as a product within your organization as well. So we're, I mean, early customers, first three, four, five customers, you, Nick and Zane, all three in the room, like pitching them, selling them, or what was, what did it look like? No, Zane did a lot of that customer development stuff early on. So th- this kind of gets back to like, Zane was the CISO at Etsy. He could really speak to, and he continues to be like an incredible representative of our sales team or an extension of our sales team because of this sort of very authentic story that we're able to tell of saying, we struggle with all these things. Do you struggle with those right now? I'm like, yes. We were so frustrated with this. We went and solved it. Do you want these solutions too? Like, we'd love to alleviate that pain that we both had going through this before. You can establish that sort of camaraderie there. 
Plus, he was the one giving a lot of talks externally while while he was at Etsy. And Nick was too valuable to have, like, he was, we were building, right? I mean, we were just trying to keep up with a really long roadmap that we knew that we needed to build. And you were... I was involved in some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like, look, I, I would be involved in a lot of those conversations, but because I, like, my, I didn't come from a security background, a lot of what I was doing early on was listening and then providing feedback. Like, so I'd be, I'd be there with Zane a lot of times. He'd be the one doing the pitch. And then we'd come off and I'd be able to be like, hey, this really resonated, this thing didn't. Right, like, and and be able to help start making some of those adjustments. It's really helpful to have two people in those conversations, because you might actually have a team of like ten people on the other side if you're selling to an enterprise. And if it's one on ten, it's incredibly hard because they're just pounding you with questions. So I'd be able to jump in with stuff over time as I was like learning the lingo and learning how to sort of speak security. But this is one of the things that we were very very cautious about early on. I didn't want to jump in and, and do that because literally there are like words in these industries that if you say them, you get outed as an outsider. Case in point, I started the podcast today saying that we're a cybersecurity company. Like there's like a joke about cyber, the word cyber, like that, you know, people on the outside like would say that, but people on the inside would never say cyber. I say it now because it's a mainstream thing. Like mainstream people call it cybersecurity, right? But like if you're trying to sell to this early adopter that's like you know really sensitive around these things, if I were to even say those things, they'd be like, oh my gosh, like who's this guy talking to us? Right? They wouldn't take me seriously. It's like if you call San Francisco San Fran. Yeah. Everyone knows or Frisco. Yeah, you're not from San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. You call it SF. Yeah. You learn that one. Exactly. Right? <laughs> it's funny. No, so so look, like I I my role early on was to basically fill in the gaps for everything that they that they couldn't spend their time on. So I built a bunch of back of house uh, solutions, make sure that we had like a ton of the sort of the rest of the path moving. I did a lot of the product management early on of making sure that we, uh, you know, that we were on track, that like things were well defined in terms of what we're actually building, because that's a lot of what I did when I was at Etsy early on. But you know, when it's three people or four people or five people, like you do whatever's needed. Right, and especially as like like because early on you're trying to hire people that have very explicit experience and very explicit skills to crush what they're doing. So I'm not hiring like a jack of all trades at the beginning to do those things. So I just like filled in the gaps for all the things that were not there, and make sure that we had money in the bank and continue to be able to have money in the bank in the future from investors. That's a big part of a job that a lot of people having like built and and managed like you know technology teams in house. It's a huge part of startups that is like. I drastically underestimated how how big of of my role would be associated with making sure that we still had money in the bank. Yeah, so that was a big steep learning curve piece for me. Yeah, chief fundraiser, right? One thing we were talking about earlier is sort of how enterprise software has changed in the last five, ten years. And you you were mentioning sort of the importance of ease of use and sort of how that plays into professional services. And I'd love to have you kind of touch on that a little bit. I'll try not to talk too long here because there's I, I have a lot of thoughts on this stuff and it's been it's been really interesting to oh, see. Go on. So a couple things early on, just like some practical learnings that we had. One is, so we started to sell professional services on top of the basic SaaS product that we sell pretty early on in our life cycle, and there are sort of a bunch of different reasons for that. But part of it was like, look again. Big Bank was one of our first 20 customers, and Big Bank expected a professional services agreement to come along with their product agreement. And they insisted on it, right? They said, no, you have to sell us this. And they sold it in like hour increments. Like it was just, we never sold services before. So we had to like get up to speed on this stuff. But we've learned over time, and there's a couple of things that are actually really interesting about this. So 
I'll, I'll say one thing and then I'll come back to this, right? So first piece is, um, again, just practical thing and practical knowledge. When large enterprises especially buy product technology, they have a separate budget for the technology as they do for the services. And for ages and ages and ages, you always bought both the product and the services. And they come from separate budgets and separate sort of money pools. So if you're a new technology company, and you're like us, you take a lot of pride in the fact that you don't need to have somebody handhold somebody through the process of getting up to speed using your technology. You want to make it as usable as possible, as scalable as possible, because why wouldn't you, right? But it turns out, as a result, you sort of almost take pride in the fact that, like, no, we don't have professional services. You don't need to buy professional services. You can use it on your own. Well, then you're just leaving money on the table. And this is what we sort of learned, is that if we sold professional services along with the actual product, we sort of assumed that, like, well, if we sold professional services, that's going to come out of the budget they have for the product, and so we're going to have to sell it at a smaller ARR you know, uh, subscription model to do it. Nope. Turns out, like they'll buy it for the exact same price. A lot of times, like sometimes, like you know, companies are kind of shifting to a different model, and it depends on how big they are. But really, the large enterprises, nope, like they're going to buy a bunch of ARR model pricing, and then they're also going to buy a professional services piece. And so our question was like, well, then what do we do with the professional services? So much of professional services historically has been about how do you get installed and having somebody come on site and take the you know the magic pizza box that you just bought and like install it into our network hardware, and this is why like I, I don't know again these are the fun pieces of selling into the enterprise you start seeing on like you know security questionnaires that you need to have a background check and a drug test on anybody that's going to come on site to be able to work in my company you can just like cross those things out completely cuz like it's the software guys like we're not coming on site like you guys install it we'll give you directions for how to do this stuff it's california we're not drug testing yeah exactly <laughs> thank god so what we learned is that you know in, in this sort of new world of saas a lot of times the professional services that that we're selling now, a lot of the actual things that people are buying and, and, the, and the services that we're delivering are more colloquially known just as customer success. And when we were starting the the sort of services org, we just had this, I don't know, it was kind of a weird assumption that like customer success was free. You offer customer success as a free service to these people, but you sell these large enterprises, like they're happy to pay for things like training and you know, uh, continuing education and you know some customizations and, and tips for how to customize the tool to get the most out of it and and you know quarterly check-ins with the teams to make sure that you know yeah that they're getting the most out of the actual product because guess what like they're buying multi-year contracts a lot of times anyway so they're they're invested up front and they absolutely have the same incentives as you do as making sure that they get the most value out of the product. Now, the corollary that's fantastic about that is that you end up getting much higher rates of retention, much higher expansion rates because you're getting people to actually get the full value out of that product and you're doing great you know, customer development at the same time. Again, you just get them to be able to actually pay for those services where you know, the industry just has this weird model that, that you don't pay for those services. So that's like sort of one line of sort of feedback there and just kind of advice for people is like, don't, don't think that customer success has to be or professional services Professional services doesn't have to be installation. It can be customer success, and customer success doesn't have to be free. Yeah, Martin Casado just went on like a tweet storm fairly recently about how enterprise software can really be driven through professional services, and the idea that he kind of lays out is that you know you can use your services organization to sort of drive new product adoption and and move people towards your way of thinking and find new opportunities to expand, and so. 
as you get more and more integrated with that team, you're able to like introduce them to new new technologies that you're delivering. Yeah. So it's kind of this, yeah. this hybrid. Yeah, Tom Tungus from Redpoint has done some really interesting analysis on some of the big SaaS companies that have gone public in the last few years and the breakdown between which ones have like big services organizations and which ones don't and trying to correlate that with um, retention and expansion. And there's there's definitely some correlations there. I, I would I would highly recommend it. We've had a lot of success doing it. The other thing that I just want to talk about in, in that space is there's this interesting experience from, again, you know, there's sort of native SaaS technology companies that are coming at this, and, and we just bring a very different bias to this process than the folks that have been buying, you know, enterprise technology for a long time in large enterprises. And those folks, there's kind of been this paradigm where it's like, look, if you don't have professional services and it's not hard to implement and it's not, you know, really complex and it doesn't require a lot of customization on it, then it's less valuable, like the thing that where it's like it, if it's harder to use and it's harder to customize, it means it's like way more valuable for you. And we really view like a core value of like what makes a premium product. It's actually the opposite. Like a premium product should be as easy to use as possible. And so I think that, that it's just a mindset for people to like think about a little bit is really think about how you can upsell to your customer that like actual like not having to tune a bunch of stuff or not having to customize a ton of stuff or not having to spend ages installing it and buying a professional services contract just to get the thing installed and running like that's a deficiency like that's not a feature right but you know you sit there and we have these conversations with customers and we say hey you know not only is this thing incredibly easy to use and you know your total cost of ownership from like a you know an FTE how many full-time employees you're going to have to actually run this thing. Like You don't have to have people actually running it, but it's also more valuable and more functional and will do the actual function at a much higher accuracy rate or something like that. They just don't believe that, right? They, they basically say like, huh, if I don't have to put that much time into it, then like there's no possible way that I can get more value out of it. Like This is just a down market, cheaper version of what I do. So just be weary about that as like a way that other people are interpreting when you're talking about, hey, this thing is super easy to use. They might assume that it's also less valuable or less functional or less effective than the thing that's harder to use. Yeah, Mark and I, my co-founder, talk about this in terms of trying to create a really easy to use experience that there's a lot going on underneath the hood that you know it, it, it seems fairly easy from above, but you need to expose some of the depth of the product in dashboards and UI and so like that people can see like even though it's simple they should still see that there's a lot there's there's things happening you you kind of want to expose some of the depth and make it so that it's you're like when you look at it, it's visually like wow there's this is valuable right totally. it doesn't mean that you need like a complicated process but it should still try to expose the value that you're creating and the information you have and so that's a really, it's like this really important piece that, you know, I think is a balance because it's don't want to make it too complex, but you want to show people that you're bringing value. Yeah, I'd say yes and no. I think it really depends on the product that you're building um, because I think, like, if you are going into an existing market that has a really bad example of use of a product or just like execution of a product, and you just like, you get the same function out of it, but it's incredibly easy to use and like super well designed. Like that can be enough. Where it doesn't need to be super complex, they can just be like, "Hey, the alternative is so bad, and this is so much easier to use." Even if I'm getting net net the almost the exact same function, 
I'll choose the one that's easier to use. When you're going into a new field, I think you're really up against that sort of builder buy culture where it's like, if you make it so easy to use, then yeah, I think really like people think that they're like, it's then it's either not that valuable or I could do it myself. Yeah, I've uh, I've run into that a few times. Security is a little easier because it's um, it's it's a bit of more of a niche like engineering sub function that most people aren't presumptive enough to think that they can do it themselves. So I think we've we've kind of we've dodged that bullet a little bit ourselves. But uh, I think most people that are building, especially like engineering technology, like it's really hard to dodge that bullet. Yeah, it's a good point. The security industry has done a good job of telling everyone that. You shouldn't build your own versions of these things. If you do, you're like, if you've invented your own encryption methodology, you've like, you're an idiot, right? So, look, man, it, it's taken us eight years hey. to do what we're doing. So, it's, we're like, hey, if you want to go down that route and try to do what we're doing, we'll, we'll give you pointers. Like, we tried to do that, right? But it's, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. It's you're like, well, the boogeyman is yeah. right behind. Yep. So, be That's careful. We, we call that FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, you can try. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Yep. Cool. Andrew, uh, thank you so much, man. This was a blast. I really appreciate all your insights. I wish we had uh, more hours to talk, but I know you got to run. So we'll, we'll have you back on, uh, I'm sure, sometime in the future. Happy to. I'm just down the street. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.